0: Hi everyone and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate Paul Wilson. Hi everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season it's not just us doing the heavy
1: lifting. That's right Mikey, this season we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. (laughs) Yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously
0: changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup. And together, we'll be turning history back to front and back again. Hi folks, you with Paul and Mikey, heroes and howls and the rest is history. G'day Paul. G'day Mikey. Now, today, this is very exciting, because for a start, this is the first time Paul and I are holding hands at the moment. <laughs> We've used satellite technology, which yes. could go, but we are going to the States, and we're talking to a guy called Jesse Joyce. Now, Jesse, for Australian listeners, a bit of a background, you've been a stand-up comic for how many years now? Like 23 years, something like that You've toured around the world, you've you've done shows for uh, for the troops overseas But also too, you've written for everyone I mean, you're best known probably for your work with Jimmy Kimmel But you've written with Joan Rivers to Seth MacFarlane But this, this is your first book Now let's let's get the title right Okay (laughs) Killing the Guys Who Killed the Guy Who Killed Lincoln A Nutty Story (laughs) About Edward Booth and Boston Corbett what made you, after years of stand-up and comedy writing, going, you know what, I think America needs another book about the Civil War?
2: <laughs> uh, well, to be honest, it came to me. The the company who is the, the publisher, uh, were looking for some comedy history thing. And so they kind of put feelers out, and my manager was like, I know a guy who just bores me to death with <laughs> comedy history Excellent. on every phone call, and I know the perfect guy for this. And so he reached out to me, I pitched him a few ideas, and... This particular book, I've just—I've always been fascinated about these two specific guys mm. that are kind of on the periphery of the of the Lincoln assassination, and I thought they'd be make a funny book.
1: And that's what we wanted to talk about today, because that's what we're really interested—is the stories behind the story, isn't it? You know, like Carlisle always yeah. says, "It's the heroes that make history, but really, it's the little bits in the background which we think are most interesting." But we ha- do have to ask you. Are, your two guys that you're bringing to the table today, do you do you see them as heroes or howlers?
2: To, to be honest, I, I I'm a fan of your podcast. I've listened to it before, you know, and I've always thought like, oh, these guys would fit in. I I think they're kind of both, <laughs> yes, both. Yeah. Yes, you know, like they fit. They both fit both descriptions. Mm. You know, they both had heroic moments. And by the way, howler is not really a, a, a American no. <laughs> term, but. <laughs> I've picked it up from yeah. your podcast. I understand its yeah. its meaning, and, and they are both that too.
0: Okay, so I, I think we'll start with Boston Corbett, mm. the, or you know, the 19th century's Jack Ruby. Yes. Yeah. Now, for a start, it's a strange life, and, and it's funny how there are echoes of his life in, in Edward and Booth, who we'll get to later, because Boston wasn't his real name.
2: No, he was born, his name was Thomas. He was a British guy who came over to America when he was like nine with his – a uh, tired old dad who is in his like late fifties. Mm. Uh so you know, kind of an old guy for a, to be dragging a nine-year-old across the ocean.
0: Because you know, he starts off fairly normal, you know, but he is a milliner. Well, he works in in silk hats, finishing off silk hats. Mm. Yeah, and that's the old you know Lewis Carroll, the Mad Mad hatter, hatter, yeah, uh, and Mercury. So even before he has his breakdown, there is some there is some sort of yeah proof that. Mercury wasn't helping. It's when his wife dies and his, his kid dies, he seems to have a breakdown. And from then, he falls down the bottle. And that's when things get a bit
2: weird. Yeah. Well, I think things were like building because I learned a lot about, about uh, mercury poisoning oh, the, yeah. in the researching of this book. It's pretty fascinating because it really makes you completely crazy and it's cumulative, mm. too. So the more you ingest, the crazier you get, you know, yeah. and... You would just sit in a closed room inhaling mercury vapor all day when you steamed these hats, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, so it was that combined with, I think, the the loss of his wife and child that like really made him snap.
0: One of the things I always find fascinating is that mercury was, for centuries, was given as a cure for syphilis.
2: Oh, yeah. That's super funny. I know, because the
0: symptoms of mercury
2: poisoning and the symptoms of syphilis are
0: pretty much one and the same.
2: Ah. Yeah. Well, that's why that's why the hat thing, which yeah. I thought was super interesting that I learned, is that they used to steam felt in human piss. That's how it used to be done. Yeah. So the hatters would pee on their own hats, right? So any picture you see of a guy in the 1840s wearing a hat, that was just like soaked in the guy who's who made its piss. <laughs> and um, And then what they discovered was hatters who had syphilis made better hats. And then from there... They did the math and were like, oh, wait, maybe it's not the piss. Maybe it's the, the mercury that's really helping. So, <laughs> so right before Boston Corbett started making hats for a living, they switched over to liquid mercury. And so he basically just ingested liquid mercury for 20 years.
0: Apart from the mercury, and of course, you know, the loss of his his wife and child, it's in the late 1850s. He becomes enthralled by a street preacher. Yeah. He becomes a zealot, grows his hair and his beard, which wasn't the fashion at the time. And that's when he gets rebaptized, takes the name Boston because that was the city that turned him away from the grog. Yeah, but then he gets a little bit weirder, doesn't he, mate?
2: This is, see, this is like the sort of pre-title sequence that is so specifically fascinating because his life gets so much crazier after this. But yeah. this is really the moment that's like the crowning moment in his particular brand of lunacy. He was a street preacher, and he would shout at people about God all all day long, and. There also were just prostitutes hanging around. And I guess the the details of exactly what happened are, but he uh, at some point spoke to a prostitute and he got like pretty horny about it, I suppose. And so then that really upset him and he went back to his apartment and he read that part of Matthew that in the book of Matthew that says that if your eye is offending you, you should cut it out. Or if your hand is what's making you stray from God, you should cut it off. And so he logically took that in his mercury poisoned brain to, oh wait, I'm really horny about this prostitute. And he took a pair of scissors and he cut off his balls with the scissors. He's castrated himself with rusty scissors.
0: Mm. Yeah, and, but not just that. He castrates himself. Then he has dinner.
2: Yeah, then he doesn't even go to the hospital no. He just kind of hangs around and he goes to church And it was like at church that people were like Hey man, your dick is bleeding, you should probably do something about that And then he spent a month in the hospital
0: yeah, Well, As you should after you're attacking your nuts Yeah But, but then he, he used another passage from the Bible Matthew 19, 12 after a minute, I hadn't come across this one Apparently Christ once said There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven Now I, yeah. ne- I never got that passage At Sunday communion school <laughs>
2: That's part of the same. If you just read, if you continue to read further down, everybody knows the eye and the hand part. Mm. Further down the list, it's also cut your balls off if they're bucking you. So that's what uh, that's what he took from that. Pretty fascinating. There's actually you can read the medical report. I included some of it in the book. It's it's pretty graphic. Here's the thing. We we now
0: move on onto the Civil War because mm. by this yeah. stage he's in New York. And then Fort Sumter comes under attack. Now, before we get into the his history of, of the Civil War, for our international listeners, I think we should just give a little bit of uh, some notes on, on the Civil War, how it sat globally.
2: Yeah, well, so... Uh, By the way, Paul, real quick, it's intimidating. I Like, you know, I'm not a historian. I'm a, I'm a comedy <laughs> douche, and... Who just have as a like history, yeah. like like Mickey, you know? So yeah. to having an actual historian like fact check this book, I I want to make sure, like I put a disclaimer at the very beginning that was this is a mostly historically accurate historical comedy. So anyway, just go easy on me.
0: Oh, I mean, basically that is the basis of this podcast. Com- yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. A, a comedy douche and a real historian. Yeah.
2: Okay. Good. All right. Cool. Well, well now there's two. You're outnumbered. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I
1: know exactly. No. Outnumbered. I'm really interested. In this, yeah, like we said, it's always the stories behind the stories. The American Civil War. Just a a question for you. You know, you're not a historian, Jesse, but you know a lot about this from the research. A lot of people have asked me over the years: Was it always inevitable? Were the North always going to beat the South? How how do you view
2: that? Were the North always going to beat the South? I mean, like they thought so initially, and Mm. you know, uh, that's why you know at Bull Run, that first big battle, Mm. like people brought picnic baskets (laughs) you know like because they were so sure that it was going to be they were just going to kick the south's ass immediately Mm. that people brought little opera glasses and they brought their kids and then like five thousand guys got blown away or however many like just right in front of them and and so it was a real disaster and then they realized oh this is going to be a long slog and i think had lincoln been killed six months early if that they could have changed the tide of it you know like Mm. lincoln was really i feel like the one really holding everything together
1: because it's quite interesting wasn't it the the plan was not just to assassinate Lincoln it was also to assassinate yeah. Sewell. Sewell the Secretary of State yeah. and the uh, Vice President as well do you think if they'd taken all three out that would have been enough to derail the, the process or were the wheels already turning too far by then too fast
2: yeah well at the time yeah yeah I mean that's what one of the reasons why John Wilkes Booth is such an idiot is yes. that too late he, he thought that yeah it's like too little too late yeah. like Uh, I mean, he's 100% in the howler category, but Mm. like, had that happened a year earlier, maybe, Mm. you know, like, but by that point, they were so demoralized, and the Mm. wind had been taken out of their sails, and they were eating their own shoes. And they had, you know, just battalions of child soldiers at that Mm. point, you know, just because they had most of the guys had been killed. So, you know, I I just they didn't have they didn't have the infrastructure to keep it going at that
1: point. No, not at that point. But as you say, a few years earlier, a couple of years earlier, you know, even though the North thought they were going to win the South. We were quite confident at the beginning. And the other question I'm always asked, you know, being a Brit, is would Britain have ever been involved? Could they have been involved? If they had been involved, may it have been a different outcome? And certainly, yeah, the, the stuff that I've been looking at, the southern states really did think that they might have a hold on Britain because of the cotton. You know, you've got all the cotton yeah. mills. England's producing 80% of the world's cotton. They're manufacturing it, sorry, but it's actually all coming from. The state. So they had this King Cotton policy that they thought they could use as leverage to try and get the Brits into the war, or at least certainly make sure the Brits didn't support the North. And of course, the Brits didn't support the, the North. They took this quite uh, controversial stance of neutrality. I personally think it's just so that they could sell, <laughs> sell all their stuff to both sides and yeah. make more money out <laughs> of it um, rather right. than any political thing. Because to be honest, after the Crimea War, I think. Britain had had enough of wars for a while and didn't really want to get involved on either side. But the the southern states were quite... Positive, and you know, for example, Gladstone's father—he'd been a big slave owner. There were a lot of slave owners or former slave owners in the in Britain, even though they had abolished slavery. Um, and there was quite a lot of sympathy for the South. I even read that the Church of England yeah. came out and supported the South, oh, not the North. There no, you go. Because ah. before the American um, War of Independence, before Declaration of Independence, when the Church of England had been in control of religion. In America, in the southern states, it had been the state religion, you know, and it was the North was seen as non-conformist. So a lot of the traditionalists, the conservatives with a small C, the landowners,
0: the gentry classes in the UK, had sympathy for for the South. But your man, Corbett, didn't. So so, Fort Sumter comes under attack. Yeah. He cuts his hair and enlists, but it doesn't go well. He he comes up against a bloke called Colonel Daniel Butterfield, this is, is his first problem with authority.
2: Yeah, he uh cuz he was a real, you know, religious maniac who didn't really understand social cues. He was constantly if anybody swore around him, he would like and he would get fired from hat shops all the time because if anybody <laughs> swore around him, he would uh fall to his knees and start loudly singing church hymns at the person who had sworn and begged for God for their forgiveness and everything like that. It would like slow down production and he'd get fired and so anyway, so there was this one incident where Some local woman came by and said that one of the troops had uh, stolen something from her. And so Butterfield called he's the colonel, the entire regiment, like calls all 900 guys to admonish them for like, hey, we're not going to have any thieves here. And he said, we'll have no damn thieves in this regiment. And Boston Corbett, just a private, just like one of the guys, one of the 900 guys, steps forward and starts yelling at the colonel for swearing, for saying (laughs) no damn thieves. And so they threw him in jail in the, like the, you know, the brig. And uh, he uh, went on a hunger strike and wouldn't stop singing loud church hymns day and night because he was a very loud guy, apparently. Yeah. And so after three days of that, the jailers were like, <laughs> Colonel Butterfield, you got to do something Take about this out. fucking guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so Butterfield came to him with a proposal. And he was like, all right, man, fine. Listen, if you just say you're sorry, I will let you out of here. And Boston Corbett was like, he was like, I'm not saying I'm sorry. You're the one who offended God. You have to say you're sorry. And, like, Butterfield just caved. Just was like, all right, you crazy son of a bitch. Go ahead. Get back in line. So, anyway, <laughs> and he, gets, he gets court-martialed. Yeah. But then he joins back up a few weeks later because there was no... Computer systems, you could just do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, well,
0: actually, so. he re-enlists three times during the war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's a moment where he's, he's fighting against the Confederate uh, raider, Colonel Mosby. He shows his bravery. Yeah. He gets sent to Andersonville. I mean, now Andersonville was like the worst POW camp, camp the Confederates right. had. A third of all prisoners there died of disease. Gets out, rejoins his, his old regiment, then the war ends. And then it gets weirder. Yeah. Uh, because Lincoln gets assassinated. And his old uh, troop, the 16th Cavalry, they are going to hunt down Booth.
2: That's what was so crazy about it was that, like, it had just ended and everybody was, like, so happy and Lincoln finally had a chance to, like, Fuck, after four years, just to go sit and see a play. It was the same week. And people forget,
0: like, uh, our American cousin was like uh, the uh, you know, the late 19th century version of The Hangover.
2: It was a very <laughs> funny, feel-good play. It, it has It's kind of Crocodile Dundee-esque. It's just sort of fish out of water. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. like Bumpkin in the Big City is the kind of premise of it.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes, but the good thing is, unlike uh, Crocodile Dundee, it didn't have a sequel. And that's <laughs> <laughs> and for that, we're all thankful.
1: Okay, folks, so we're talking about the man who shot the man who shot the man. The main man, of course, being Lincoln at the end um, of the U.S. Civil War. His assassin is Booth, but we've been talking about the guy who killed Booth, Boston.
0: So how, Mikey, how did we end up here? Well, I think we'll throw to Jesse here because... Yeah, Boston is is filled with with zealotry after Lincoln's assassination. So he joins the group that hunts down Booth. Is is that right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like a a pretty loud abolitionist and uh, really detested slavery. And he even like tried for a few years to sell hats in Richmond, Virginia, but but couldn't help himself and kept yelling at people about slavery, and nobody wanted to buy hats from him and whatever. So <laughs> so he was when when Lincoln was assassinated. He was particularly. Incensed because he was very patriotic and he loved Lincoln and Lincoln emancipated the slaves and he he was all in on Lincoln and so then and also he was completely crazy. And so Lincoln gets killed and it just fires him up. So he's like the first guy to volunteer to hunt this motherfucker down. Right. So he and the 16th Cavalry just go chasing after John Wilkes Booth for 12 days.
0: But here's the thing, they were told, the 16th Cavalry were told to take Booth alive.
2: Yeah, because uh, because it was a big conspiracy, like we mentioned, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. like, you know, because the plan was to kill the Secretary of State and to kill the Vice President, and they didn't know mm. who all was involved. There was John Surratt, and there was, you know, all these other guys like Lewis Powell, and, and all these dudes, they start picking up here and there, and they're like, oh, this is a big conspiracy. We need the, the mastermind to find out how deep it goes, with, was the vice president involved? You know, they didn't know. Like, Because the vice president was actually fine. Like, the guy who was now, assigned to kill him just got drunk and <laughs> changed his mind.
0: They hunt Booth down. He, he's in the barn. The barn is burning. What causes your man, Corbett, to take the fatal shot? D- did he need to? Did he need to take that shot?
2: No, no, he didn't need to at all. Like, they were going to smoke him out, you know? And, and, if they, and if that didn't work, they were going to drag him out. He was already, like, badly wounded. He had a broken leg, you know? Mm. Like, it wouldn't be that hard to rush in and grab him. Boston, to his credit, did twice ask if he could go in and get him. And they were like, no, just stay where you are. And so then the third time... All of a sudden, God started talking to him. That used to happen a lot to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. God told him, like, you know what? You should probably kill this guy. And so he just he was positioned at this crack in the barn where he could see everything that was going on. And because of the fire, everything was illuminated. And he says it later on in the inquest that he was aiming elsewhere. But uh, he ended up shooting Booth exactly in the spot where Lincoln was killed. Right in the back of the head wow. in the same spot and so mm. Boston attributes that to like see it was god you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. so then they they immediately are like boston what the fuck have you done and okay. so they like arrest him and they're going to take him back to uh, dc for a court martial hearing and he has to like explain everything to edwin stanton who is this kind of big tough mean guy who was the secretary of war you know and everybody's mm. afraid of him and uh and uh he gets there and it's like it was like the Super Bowl parade, right? Like, it was chaos. Everybody was so thrilled when he arrived, when Boston Corbett arrived. He was a national hero overnight, immediately, Mm -hmm. because he was the guy who killed John Wilkes Booth. And so they basically had to go like, well, I guess, I don't know, he's a hero. Everybody seems pretty thrilled about it. So they just let him, like, just like, he just overnight became a hero, and then Matthew Brady takes his pictures. Yes. and And, which is a rare thing. Like, most people never got their picture taken, you know? And this is like the most famous photographer in the world, and uh, he or at least in America, he'd already taken a Booth's picture before mm. and mm. Lincoln's and whatever. So now he takes Boston's picture and he turns that into like a baseball card. Yes. It gets trade, like, you know, passed around all over America. Everybody has everybody wants it and has it. And Boston becomes this enormous celebrity. And he starts getting invited to, like, go on tour and, yes. like, talk about the killing of Booth. And yeah. so he, like, goes to theaters and he is like he's an awkward guy and he's very crazy and so his shows are disastrous
1: but people still come and see him
2: oh yeah 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 everybody wanted to go see
1: him it's hard to underestimate just how big a story is because we touched on in an earlier episode jesse we talked about the original assassination of lincoln by booth and that you know in itself seemed like a big story but this almost became a bigger story he really was seen as a hero for getting the revenge right
2: yeah yeah they, they called him lincoln's avenging angel yes, or whatever and so yeah. and everybody wanted to see him and get his autograph and shake his hand and all that stuff and and then it, it's funny every even every, i read a bunch of old newspapers and like every single review is like this show is bad like, <laughs> like everybody was like this is a mess like like so so boston got a lot of people to come and see him once
0: no one came again
2: no. Yeah, yeah, nobody came back no to the repeat. second show. No repeats.
0: So. That becomes the, the next problematic chapter in his life because the fame fades yeah. and he starts to get a little bit crazier. By 1874, he's more and more erratic. He's tormented by conspiracy theories that Booth's alive and Booth is actually gonna hunt him down.
2: Yeah, that's so fascinating to me. It's like a QAnon thing, sort of. You know, like yeah. he like people in the South started rewriting history and saying that John isn't really dead and Boston killed the wrong guy. And Boston right. would get very mad any time anybody said that. He'd pull guns on them, like, all the time <laughs> in public. He was always pulling guns on people. In,
0: in fact, it wasn't, wasn't even never taking pot shots at children that played too close to his house? Well, that's
2: later. That's well, later. That's later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, like, he continues to go ever crazier. Like, right. it, it just, it continues to ascend or descend, however you want to say it, toward further craziness. But so somewhere in this period after, like, a decade after, he starts believing those crazy rumors That John Wilkes Booth is alive Mm. and he's very mad at Boston for killing him. You understand? Like, so he, he, like, so somebody sends Boston a death threat from John Wilkes Booth and he freaks out. And he's like, oh my God, the guy who I killed is so mad at me. He's coming back. He's coming to kill me. Uh, So he just picks up and takes off and moves to Kansas, which is very far away from New Jersey where he was living. Yeah. And it's like right in the middle of the country. And at the time, there was nothing there. And he just moves to Kansas and just digs a gigantic hole in the ground and, like, lives in the hole, just waiting for the day when John Wilkes Booth is going to show up with his, like, two guns pointed at the entrance to the hole, just waiting for John. <laughs>
0: yeah, but, but, but then in 1886, the local veterans organization in Kansas, they feel sorry for him. They get him a job as a doorkeeper yeah. at the state legislature. Yeah. But once again, you said, you know, he's propensity to pulling, pulling out guns for no real reason, bites, <laughs> bites him in the ass, and he ends up in an asylum. Yeah. But
2: then but then yeah. the story continues. He steals a horse. Yeah. So he's in the hole and he's very crazy and he would take shots at local children who came on his property and he'd have to go and go to court and they drag him to court. And one time when he was in court, he pulled his guns on everybody in court because for some fucking reason, they didn't think to take his guns away from him during his pulling guns on people trial. <laughs> and, and he just took off and went home back to his hole. And like, they just like let him do whatever. Cause he was so crazy. And then, yeah, but a veterans organization was like, this guy was really famous back in the day. And he, you know, he's the guy who killed the guy. Booth. And so, mm, right, so mm. they give him this just ceremonial gig, just kind of like a—I don't know if you guys have. Do you guys have WalMarts there? Like yeah, a Walmart yeah. greeter is. Walmart greeters are just jobs reserved for retirees, you know. And all <laughs> they have to do is just sort of smile and stand there and tell people where the bathroom is, you know. Like so, he was basically. Yeah, that at the Kansas State House it sounds like a good gig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a very easy gig. All he had to do was just not hold the entire Kansas State House hostage, and that's exactly what he did. So he he freaks out, and then he holds everybody hostage, the speaker, the like the whole, all the whole legislature for hours, and they have to arrest him and then put him in an insane asylum. Yeah, right.
0: which he escapes from, which brings us to the yeah, last exactly, <laughs> which brings us to the last part of the Corbett story. There are so many theories about what happens to him and how he died. Have you settled on how did he actually die?
2: No, I don't. I like – well, so what I think historians would say is that the what was reported is that he went to Mexico and just was never seen again. Mm. But there is this other theory, and I like it more because it's more fun, <laughs> that he ended up somehow up in Minnesota – uh, as, like, an old man, and he would hunt wild game for, like, a logging camp. And he was this crazy old man who, like, lived by himself, a recluse, and his name was Thomas Corbett, which that was his original, mm,
1: that was yes, his real name. Yes.
2: And then the biggest forest fire in American history at the time, the Great Inkley Fire broke out, and, like, the last thing people remember seeing, some of the guys who survived it from the logging camp, was that old guy, uh, uh, Thomas Corbett, not being able to keep up seeing him in the fire, and that ah. he probably he may have died in that forest fire, which is a pretty historic death too, you know? so
0: In, in fact, Google Hinckley Fire of 1894. It's a, it's actually a pretty well-documented event. Mm. I, I, yeah. I think with that, we'll uh, put uh, Boston Corbett to one side, take a break and have a chat about Edwin Booth.
1: Hi, folks. Uh, welcome back and welcome, Jesse, um, all the way um, from the USA. We're talking about the man who shot the man who shot the man. Uh, we've dealt with Boston Corbett. And the guy, of course, who he killed is Lincoln's assassin, Booth. Now, we, as I said, we've talked about Booth a couple of times in, in previous episodes. Uh, we, we've had Lincoln's, uh, the debacle of the evening yeah. when he actually gets shot. But there's a bit more to Booth than, than meets the eye as well. And
0: Jesse, you've got a few uh, things that you wanted to point out, as, as you have, Mike. Yeah, well, but, but of course, you yeah, have to remember, Booth came from... A very well established and well known theatrical family. Yes. Sort of, sort of like what the Barrymores would become in, in Lady Years. Yeah. So, one of your characters is Edwin Booth, who was the older brother. Now, if we're to look at Edwin's life, we have to realize too that uh, the father of both Edwin and John Wilkes uh, was a guy called uh, Junius Brutus Booth. Now, Junius had a few problems of his own, didn't he?
2: Oh man yeah he was a, he was like a, a classic celebrity loon like a, you know just a real like a Kanye almost just like yeah. a real out of control wackadoo. But he was a really interesting guy who was apparently very talented, I guess, who was very famous.
0: There's the story that uh, that booth's father uh, Junius Brutus Booth. Well at the age of 13 he was uh, accused of knocking up a servant girl. In a village, yeah, you know, a bit of a theatrical pants man. Anyway, he moves. Yeah. He, he moves to America. He becomes quite a, a successful actor in, in a style we'd sort of describe as, as melodramatic. But his son Edwin doesn't actually go to the stage just to act. At the age of thirteen, you know you your main second character in the book, Edward Booth, the, you know, the brother of John Wilkes Booth. Is pretty much his dad's guardian.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a reverse Britney Spears situation. Like he has, yes. he's like a has a conservatorship of his dad, basically, because his dad was such a maniac. So he has to go on the road to babysit his unpredictable father, who would do stuff like, like he would just take his pants off yeah. sometimes. Like he would just be naked publicly, or he'd get in drunken fights. Sometimes, like he would play Richard the Third, and that was like his sort of signature role. Right, yes. that was his, what he was most famous for. And he would just arbitrarily decide in the middle of the show that he didn't want to lose the sword fight and die at the end, and Mm -hmm. he would literally fight these other local actors out into the street with his toy sword, you know, until the cops had to yank him off him. Like, (laughs) but it's very confusing to the rest of the cast. So he would end up in jail all the time, and he would blow the money on just crazy shit. He would get drunk, or one time I have this story, this story in the book that he was like a also like a a real. Intense animal rights activist. Like right. they didn't really see back then.
1: Well, I think he was just very intense. Full stop, wasn't he, Jesse? You know, he, he was a handful, which is why his son, of course. Um, was looking after him. And I think I, I think it's really important for listeners just to realise that we're talking about an incredibly famous yeah. uh, theatrical family, you know, father, son, and then, of course, the other son, Thomas Wilkes, who then, of course, becomes the assassin of Lincoln.
2: Yeah, John Wilkes, but in that, like, famous family lineage, was sort of like one of the lamer Hemsworths. Yeah, you know he was, what I mean? So he was not that big a deal.
0: Very much the junior, yeah. Here's the thing. Edwin gets on stage. and He had some non-speaking roles, but in New York in about 1851... Dad's too drunk to go on, mm. so Edwin goes on, and it, once again as Richard. And I'd like to say a star is born, but not really. He becomes a jobbing actor. He constantly tours, and how's this, Paul? He even makes it to Australia. Oh, yeah. Edwin Booth does a tour of uh, the Australia and the Sandwich Isles now, Hawaii, eighteen fifty-four. But it's in eighteen sixty with shows in New York and Boston that he really makes his mark. Tell me if I'm wrong here, Jesse he sort of starts to move towards an acting style which we describe as more naturalistic as opposed to like the sort of melodramatic style of his father.
2: Yeah, as I understand it, it was like he was kind of like young Marlon Brando in the way that he just totally changed the game. Like everybody else was pretty sort of cartoonishly sort of miming stuff, like Shakespeareanly, you know, just bloviating Shakespeare before Edwin came along. And then Edwin was kind of like, I don't think that, I think think audiences deserve more credit than this and was just subtle about it and would convey what Hamlet was feeling by just kind of being quiet instead Mm. of just like, I'm sad. and You know, (laughs) like, you know, instead of like doing that kind of, like Mm. he just was apparently was revolutionary. Like he was just really... It, it changed the whole game.
0: Like Corbett too, has a problem with Grog. Yeah, and in fact, his first wife dies, and he misses the final minutes of her life because he's drunk,
2: mm. and
0: that's when he gives up the that's when he gives up the booze. Right.
2: Yeah, and it's probably his fault too because he gave her uh, chlamydia. All right. Uh, and guilt trip. Yeah, and she got pregnant with their daughter, who is inexplicably named Edwina. <laughs> um, after, his, yeah. after Edwin, yeah. uh, and then that, yeah, he just was sort of racked with guilt and everything, and because he missed it, because he was drunk, she just died. She spent a week dying, and he couldn't make it up to Boston to see her. Now,
0: in 1864, on there's one night, November the 25th, 1864, it's at the Winter Garden Theatre, which he was running. There's a uh, one performance of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, and it's the only time all three acting Booth brothers are on stage.
2: Ah, yeah, there was another one, too, named June Junior. Yeah, we we didn't really talk about. But yeah, he was much older than the other two. And he went out to San Francisco and became an actor out west in like mining camps and stuff like that during the gold rush. Mm. And uh, so then all three Booth brothers, this is after their dad had already died. Mm. uh, All three of the brothers were on stage for the first time ever. Uh, And it was to raise money for this to build a statue to William Shakespeare, which is in Central Park right now in New York City. So if you go to Central Park. You could see the statue
0: Yeah, I, I, I know, I've seen that statue Yeah, That was paid for by the, Bo- the Booth brothers right.
2: That's because of that night By
0: 1864, he's on stage with, with John Wilkes By that stage, Edwin is pretty much a, a, a strong supporter of the North And John Wilkes is, is showing his confederate colours Did the brothers fight much over this?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't include this in the book, but there was like a big throwdown where Edwin kicked him out of his house in New York City and said, you're never allowed back. It's just like one of those ruined Thanksgiving dinner kind of things, I think, you know, <laughs> where they, somebody brought up politics and it just fucked up the whole night. But yeah, uh, there's a, a way you can kind of blame Edwin a little bit for this, because Edwin was really concerned. He was a kind of a egotistical guy and, and, and his dad, and, you know, whatever, he's a celebrity. And the dad had bestowed the Booth name onto Edwin, like Uh. passed the torch to him Mm. in the theater world. And then his little brother, who was kind of a hacky, shitty actor, shows up. And he's like, I went in on this too. And Edwin said, like, I don't want you screwing up our family reputation. Mm. And so he basically banished John to perform in the South in the 1850s before the Civil War. So Edwin was like, I'm going to take all the cool modern northern cities like boston and you know chicago and philadelphia and new york yeah and new york and yeah and you are welcome to go ahead and perform wherever you want in the south Mm. and so it's like the late 1850s and john has to go down there and he didn't he wasn't trained or anything like Edwin was because he didn't have his dad's benefit of like watching his dad perform. And so, you know, he's just kind of making it up as he goes along and just going and doing these shows in Barnes and Mobile, Alabama. And then afterwards, he just goes out and gets drunk with these guys who are just bitching about the north and northern mm-hmm. aggression. And the fact that there's guys up in the north who are trying to keep us down and won't let us do what we want. And, you know, like and John really identified with that was like, yeah, yeah, I know a guy, my brother's like that, you know? And so he kind of got radicalized for that very reason.
1: There's something about civil wars and family rivalry, isn't there? Because, you know, in the English Civil War, it's famous for dividing families, usually generational. Yeah. yeah, the fathers would take the royalist side and the and the sons would be the Puritans. Was there a lot of family divides in the U.S. at this period, Jesse? Was, was it common? Yeah, have... I mean, that's
2: how they described the Civil War is it yeah. was brother against brother. You know, yeah. that's that's the descriptive term. And in this case, it literally was. Yeah. You know? So that was pre-Civil War. So, you know, Edwin kind of is the one who just sort of arbitrarily created the Mason-Dixon line, you know? I mean, it existed, but (laughs) but he basically, like, sent his brother just anywhere south of the Mason-Dixon and I'm going to stay north of it (laughs) just in the years before the
0: Civil War. Let's jump forward now to the assassination. How does Edwin react once his brother's become the most hated person in the north uh, after he shoots Lincoln?
2: So, yeah, I mean, he's, like, beside himself. And, you know, for literal reasons, like, eh, he was one of Lincoln's favourite actors. Like, eh, Lincoln had come and seen him perform like Mm. six times and so he knew lincoln and lincoln was a fan of his and you know he was a proud patriot and a northerner and you know his dad was like that too and uh and so so as a result like he was pretty brokenhearted by the whole thing but then also like pretty terrified personally because all of a sudden their family is a pariah
1: yeah, someone like Boston <laughs> Corbett might come along and kill him just for the fun of it, as well.
2: Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. So, and that actually was happening to the rest of his family, yeah, like yeah, yeah. who didn't have the luxury of being as famous as Edwin. Like June got arrested, and yeah. uh, and their sister Asia's husband got arrested. Like they all spent time in jail for That's this. That's Right. Yeah. And uh, and it was just that Edwin had so many powerful friends in high places that he didn't have to. He didn't end up going to jail, but he quit acting. Uh, Like famously, he wrote a big letter to the New York Times to like Mm -hmm. the world saying, I'm done with acting Mm -hmm. and that. Lasted for six months. I was about to say. <laughs> like, I'm yeah, back, everybody. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, by 1866, he's back as Hamlet and it's a triumph. Now, look, I'm just going to touch on this before we move on the rest of his story. Because we're talking about that end of the Civil War era. Historians are divided on, on this topic. Did Edwin Booth actually save Lincoln's son, Robert, from a trolley car in late 1864 or early 1865?
2: Paul would know better than I would. But everything I've ever read says that that's a true story, that Robert Lincoln himself said that. Paul, have you heard otherwise? Or?
0: I've
1: told that Lincoln's son always claimed it to be true. Yeah. But for me, it's just one of those you know, historical coincidences. It's a, it's a coincidence, isn't it?
2: Yeah. It's one of the reasons, it was one of the initial anecdotes I knew when I started writing this book was like, mm. oh, I definitely want to include that. Yeah. That, oh. yeah, when Robert Lincoln was like 20, he was coming back from college or whatever, and he was at a train station and it was very crowded and he fell between two train cars just as they started to move and he was going to get crushed and somebody just reached down and grabbed him, pulled him up Mm. And it was the most famous man in America. It mm. was Edwin mm. Booth. And mm. so Robert Lincoln recognized him right away. It was like, holy shit. Like, Thanks, Edwin Booth. While we're talking about Booth, we've actually touched
0: on this before. In 1875, Edwin Booth does the first American proper version of King Lear because a guy called Nahum Tate, we did yes, an episode about that's him. right, we did that. He turned King Lear into basically a rom-com. And it wasn't until Edwin Booth restages it in 1875 that we get the original Shakespearean text. And goes back to really? being a it. Oh, yeah.
2: that's yeah. fascinating.
0: Booth actually, ends, his legacy is as a great actor. But there's one thing I've got to ask because you are in the business and you are bi-coastal. Yeah. Have you ever been to the Players Club in Manhattan?
2: No, I wish. I, I really want to go. This fascination with this particular story happened after I moved to Los Angeles, but I lived in New York for many years and I went by Gramercy Park and I saw the statue of Edwin that's there in the park and I know I walked past his house, but mm. I've never been... In the players and the coolest thing is edwin's apartment is upstairs right what? it used to be his house and then he basically donated it to start this club with ah. mark twain and with uh william tecumseh sherman those three guys got together to start the players and they used edwin's mansion but edwin kept an apartment upstairs and one of the rules the bylaws of the founding of the club was that they have to keep edwin's apartment exactly the same for eternity Brilliant. and uh it still is so you can see you can go up there and his little slippers are in the place where he died and there's this um there one of the walls i think is really interesting it's right by his bed you can see it in pictures uh it only has two photos and it's of john and of his second wife who he couldn't stand maryam mcvicker and he used to call it his wall of shame Oh, ah. so, which which interesting like he kind of killed his first wife you know what i mean in a yeah, way. I, know, yeah. that, I mean i think it's just more like people that he it pissed him off so i feel like you really need a third face on that wall to
0: triangulate
2: how bad a person you have to be to end up on that wall you know what i mean so
0: we've been chatting with jesse joyce the book is called killing the guys who killed the guy who killed lincoln a nutty story testicle reference about edwin booth and boston corbett now this is your debut book after yeah after a storied career in in comedy and comedy writing have you got the history bug is there going to be another history book mate
2: Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been I've been a history dork forever. I just didn't know anybody wanted to hear what <laughs> I had to say. So, uh, yeah, like, it's kind of nice. And and the thing is, I, I've been sober for 18 years. So I I love the idea of drunk history, but nice. I can't get drunk and right. talk people in bars about history. So I need another outlet for that. So that's why I thought maybe I'll write a book Excellent. and do Drunk History but from a sober guy. So.
0: <laughs> Can we just say it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Jesse. And, um, look, next time in Australia, uh, we'd love to buy you a meal.
2: Oh, man, that's a goal of mine, to go to Australia.
0: Um, and, uh, folks, you know, if you you want to go back through
1: the catalogue, you'll, you'll see we've got a few episodes on Lincoln, and we've also, as I said, King Lear, some of the theatre in the 19th century Yeah, we do. Um, for the US as well. So go and have a look at those. Uh, and hopefully, Jesse, you'll you'll write another book for us and, and come on and see us next
2: year. I would love to. And in the meantime, I'll, I'll be listening, because I, I love your show.
1: All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta,
0: whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the wrist is. the rest is hissed and you'll find all that in the show notes and wherever you're listening don't forget to like subscribe comment on whichever platform you happen to use it's always good to get your feedback yes keep it all coming lots of fun and lots of maps (laughs) and lots of new guests to look forward to Paulie we've got guests galore each with their very own hero and howler